Today is day five of our Jesus Unknown series. Jesus Unknown. The whole point of this series is that when you read the Gospels, you find people who received Jesus, and you find people who rejected Jesus. And both of them had one thing in common. None of them knew who he was. Yeah. And the ones who accepted Jesus accepted the Jesus they thought he was. And the ones who rejected Jesus rejected the Jesus they thought he was. But at the end of the day, what Jesus kept revealing again and again and again and again is I'm not who you thought I was. But the Jesus that is revealed is always greater than the Jesus of your thoughts. And the problem of today is that if you go outside, you're going to find people who say they believe in Jesus and people who say they don't believe in Jesus. But what both groups seem to have in common is they don't know who he is. There seems to be this idea that Jesus is anyone you want him to be. And he's not. He's someone very particular. So particular that only he has the right to tell you who he is. And the the point, the whole point of this series is that to accept or reject Jesus, you got to meet him. Until you meet him, you don't even know who he is. So you can't actually honestly say that you've accepted or rejected him until you meet him. And so every message in this series has been about facilitating a meeting with the true Jesus, the real Jesus, not the Jesus of common culture, not the Jesus of the Democrats or the Jesus of the Republicans or the independent Jesus, but the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of the Bible. I'm going to read one verse of Scripture here out of uh, Matthew chapter 21. I'm just going to look at, uh, what is it, verse 10. Verse 10 and 11, actually. This is what it says. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The passage of scripture that we just read here in Matthew chapter 21 is about what's called the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, And this was a momentous occasion, and I'll tell you why it's a momentous occasion. You can read about this in Matthew 21, also Mark 11, and also Luke 19. All three of these passages of Scripture tell us this story, and each of them give us a different nuance and a different different kind of side or angle of the story, but it's the same story that appears in all three chapters of the Bible. In the ancient world, when a king approached your city, he approached in one of two methods of transportation— And the method of transportation by which a king approached your city determined whether you opened the gates and let him in or locked up the gates and prepared for war. If you looked up on the hillside and saw a king approaching your city on a white horse, you locked up the gates and prepared for war. Because when a king approached your city on a white horse, he's approaching to make war with your city, to destroy your city, to conquer your city. But if you look up on the hillside and see a king approaching your city 
on a mule or a donkey, you opened the gates of your city and you welcomed him with joy because when a king approached your city on a donkey or a mule, he was approaching to make peace. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the valley from the city of Jerusalem. He grabs two of his disciples. He says, I want you to walk up the hill a little bit. You're going to find a donkey that's tied to a post. Untie him and bring him to me. And they're like, Lord, you can get shot for taking people's donkey up here in these parts. He's like, I know, but if anybody asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And he'll let you go. Now that's kind of dangerous. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of dangerous, right? So the disciples are like, all right. They go up the hill. They find the donkey. They untie it. The guy goes, hey, what you doing with my donkey? And they go, the Lord said he has need of it. He goes, oh, okay, go ahead. You got, you got this. That's a miracle in and of itself. The disciples still don't understand what's about to go down. But when they bring the donkey to Jesus, they're like, what did you need this donkey for? He says, I'm going to ride on him. And so a couple of the disciples, they take off their coat and they throw it over the donkey. It's like a little makeshift saddle. Jesus climbs up on it. He says, all right, I need somebody to, to, you know, to lead it. So they're leading it forward. He says, where are we going? He says, we're going to Jerusalem. And with every step towards, the, towards Jerusalem, the minds of the disciples start opening. Yeah. And one of them's like, wait a second. Wait a second. Hold on. I read about this somewhere. Wait a minute. Didn't the prophets say that our king was coming? He said, rejoice, virgin daughter of Zion, for behold, your king cometh, humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. Wait a second. And the disciples, one by one, start exploding in praise and rejection, uh, praise and adoration. And they, they see these palm branches. They start climbing up in the tree, pulling down palm branches and laying their coats on the road. And the disciples are just going crazy, waving palm branches, screaming Hosanna, which means save now. And the crowd of people, they start coming out of their houses going, what's going on? And they're like, now, every good Jewish person knew the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. They knew it. So when they see Jesus riding on a donkey, they remember the stories of him healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons and cleansing the lepers. And they were like, I knew it. I knew he was the Messiah. I knew he was the one we were waiting for. And they start joining the throng. And pretty soon the crowd gets bigger and bigger. And the excitement is growing and growing. And the hype is increasing and increasing. And more people are throwing their coats on the road. And more palm branches are coming down from trees. And everybody's wiped. Jesus is just silent. Just riding on a donkey. Just silent. And it gets bigger. And the celebration gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they're approaching Jerusalem... The throng is out of control, and the people start losing their minds. Why? What are they so excited about? What they're so excited about was that for about 400 years now, the people of Israel had a hope, yeah. an expectation. You see, they had been under occupation, some type of foreign occupation, 
going all the way back to about 600 years prior. First, you've got the Assyrians, really, that came in 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 the mid-700s B.C. and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Then you had Nebuchadnezzar come in the late 500s, and really, beginning in 605, he started you know, taking them captive. But in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. And from that time on, they not only lived in, not, they were in 70 years of captivity in Babylon, but we, even when they came back from captivity, they were under occupation. And they went from Babylonian occupation to Persian occupation to the occupation of the Medes and then the Greeks and now the Romans. Just empire to empire to empire to empire to empire. They're being handed off and handed off and handed off. And it's in this intertestamental period that this messianic expectation begins to grow. What's the messianic expectation? God is going to raise up David's son. He is going to overthrow everything that oppresses us. He is going to set us free. He is going to reestablish the kingdom of David. He's going to drive out every foreign power of occupation. He's going to give us our freedom again. He's going to establish, it's going to be like the old days of David again, where nobody can touch us. It's going to be like the old days of David again, where all of the nations around us quake with fear. He's going to break them like a a pot shirt. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, there's all these whispers. He's the guy. He's the guy. He's the Messiah. He's going to do it. He's, and everybody had been waiting for the entire three years of his ministry for him to show up, for him to go into Jerusalem, for him to proclaim himself the king, for him to reestablish the throne of David, raise up his army, overthrow the Romans, and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And now suddenly one day he goes, go get me a donkey. It's time. That's why they're losing their minds, because it's time. I mean, imagine the thing that you've been hoping for your entire life, and God says, it's time. Imagine the thing that your family has been hoping for for generations, and God says, it's time. I mean, imagine that your entire, your entire ethnic group has had this hope for hundreds of years, and God says, it's time. An answer to prayer 600 years in the making. And God says, it's time. The problem was that it wasn't time. Because as he's entering in Jerusalem, they're going crazy because they assume they know what he's going to do. And you know what happens when you assume? They assume they know what God's going to do. See, a lot of people believe in Jesus because they assume they know what God is going to do. And there's a certain type of expectation that is nothing more than premeditated disappointment. The thing we have to remember is that this same crowd that was screaming out Hosanna today on, on Palm Sunday, five days later was screaming out, crucify him. Why? Because the thing that they expected him to do on Palm Sunday, he did not do. And that led to the deep disillusionment and disappointment that led to them to the place where they're like, just be done with him. He's not the guy we thought he was. Exactly. He's not the guy you thought he was. You see, everyone in your walk with Christ, you come to the place where you recognize that he's not the guy you thought he was. 
And when you hit that place of disillusionment where you realize that he's not who you thought he was, and he's not going to do what you thought he was going to do, that you either open your heart to allow him to reframe your expectations. You give him the right to determine what he does and what he does not do. You, You recognize the fact that he reserves the right to tell you who he is and who he isn't. And that he does not submit to your expectations. Nor to the pressure that you place on him to perform. That he will not become the action figure of your making. He will not become the greatest American hero. He will not put on a cape. He enters Jerusalem. Now watch this. There's a crowd there in Jerusalem that says, who is this? Now, first of all, you got a crowd screaming, Hosanna, and then you got a crowd going, who is this? Who's the crowd going, who is this? What's happening is everybody's coming to town for the Feast of Passover. And the people who are in town for the Feast of Passover have come from all over the world, all over the the Greco-Roman Empire. And they got no clue what's going on. They were like, who is this? And then the crowd answers, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Wrong and wrong. Prophet, you still have no clue who he is. You're still thinking of him according to an Old Testament paradigm. From Nazareth, you don't know that he was born in Bethlehem. He's actually the son of God, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, but all you know is he's the prophet who comes from Nazareth. And what does Jesus do? As soon as he enters Jerusalem, what's he do? Does he go proclaim himself king? Does he start driving out the Romans? Does he start gathering an army? Does he lay out his political agenda? He goes straight to the temple. The disciples are like, Lord, where are we going? We're going to the temple. What are we going to the temple for? He don't answer those questions. He's like my daddy. Bishop daddy. My dad used to pick us up, and he would just drive. We thought we were going home. He'd drive right past the house. Where are we going? No answer. He'd get on the freeway. Oh, no, because all I could think of was, I'm not going to get to watch DuckTales. <laughs> you remember DuckTales, right, Firebee? That's all I could think was, I wanted to watch DuckTales. I'll never forget. My dad comes and picks us up from school one day. We get in the car, just blank look on his face. He just drives. He doesn't even say hello. Just got in the car and just drove right past School Street. I thought, oh, we're supposed to, he missed that right. Well, we still got Souter Street. You can turn right on Souter Street, you know, right past Souter Street. Uh, Dad? No answer. Uh, Dad, where are we going? So I'm thinking, I'm just going to get out and walk home and still catch my ducktails. I'm like, Dad, Dad, can I just get out and walk home? No, he did answer that question. He turns left and gets on the 580 going in the opposite direction. I'm thinking, Oh, no. We're going to the ghetto. We're going to Ma- I thought we were going to Mama's house. 
because he gets on the 880. And I'm like, oh, no. There are just certain days you don't feel like going to the ghetto. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and then he gets off at the Coliseum exit, which confirmed that we're going to the ghetto. But suddenly he pulls into the Coliseum, and my mindset shifted. I said, hold on a second. What's going on here? Shows them a VIP badge, and they send them to VIP parking. I said, what is going on here? And they took us in an entrance to the Oakland Coliseum that I'd never been in before. We're at the Warriors game. We got front row seats. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm so glad I'm not home watching DuckTales right now. <laughs> Next time daddy's driving, just let him drive. Don't ask any questions. Let him determine the destination. The problem is we all have destinations in our mind where we think we want God to take us, and all it is is DuckTales, and you don't realize that where he's taking you is so much greater than your DuckTales. They thought Jesus was going to go to the seat of power and establish himself as the political monarch over Israel. And what a king he would have made. What an army he would have raised up, right? I mean, think about it. The man can raise the dead. His, he could have taken 25 soldiers and overthrew the Romans. They all get killed. He just wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> Arms chopped off, just put it back on. Get back out there, you're good. No food? Shoot, all I need is one little piece of bread and some fish. Multiply that junk. <laughs> right? We'll walk on water and an amphibious attack against the road. I mean, who, I mean, what he could have done. Undefeatable army. You ever think of what Jesus could have done in your life? the possibilities, the stuff that he could have blessed you with, doesn't that just burn you up when you think of the stuff that he could have blessed you with that he didn't bless you with? Lord, if you just would have told a brother to buy Bitcoin in 2010, a brother would have been a billionaire by now. But he just drove right past it. Instead, he enters the temple and I love Luke's version because it says, and when he had fashioned a whip, which means he goes in the temple and sits down. He goes, go get me some nylon, just strands of nylon. <clears throat> and the disciples are like, what you doing? Just braid. What you braid? Just three strands of nylon, a perfect, a perfect French braid. When he had fashioned a whip. He gets up and starts beating. The, he sees that the temple court is filled with money changers, people buying and selling. It's supposed to be a place of worship. They're in there buying and selling and cheating. Wow. Cheating people. Yeah. In the space that's supposed to be dedicated to worship and prayer, wow. there's business, enterprise, and cheating. And he just takes a whip and starts driving out the money, and he's, he's pissed. He says, it is written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Turning over the tables and beating people. And they're like, this ain't what he's supposed to be doing. 
See, when you came to Jesus, you had a list for him to do, like he was your administrative assistant. You submitted your list of tasks to him. Here's the stuff I need you to fix. But instead, he went into your temple and started dealing with your pride. So hold, hold on a second, Lord. I need you to deal with them. I need you to deal with the folks at my job that don't see who I am, that don't understand my giftedness, don't understand what a gift I am to this workplace. I need you to deal with my boss who passed me over for the promotion seven times. I need you to deal with my wife who always got something crazy to say to a brother. I need you to deal with these crazy kids that don't do their homework, that don't clean up after themselves. I need you to deal with them, these trolls on the internet. Can't post nothing on Instagram without these trolls coming and saying crazy. I need you to deal. I've got a list of stuff that I need God to deal with. And he just walks right past my list, right into my temple and starts turning over the money changers in my own. Why are you, why are you messing with me? I said, save now. Save me from them. I need you to fix them. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm coming into your life as a king. But you want me to rule over all of that stuff out there. That's not my agenda. My agenda is to rule over all of this stuff in here. I'm going to teach you how to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. I'm coming against every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in your heart. I'm coming after your vain imaginations. In the midst of all that, in the midst of all the chaos... Money changers flying everywhere. They got welts all over them. Gold coins flying everywhere. It's, it's a mess. Sometimes Jesus comes into your life and stuff gets messier than it was before. I thought he would come and bring order to my life. Yes, he's coming to bring order. But sometimes the first step of bringing order is destroying the false order. Sometimes you got to dig some stuff up before you can plant the good stuff. Sometimes you got to tear the structure down before you can build the right structure. See, we don't realize that the digging down is the first step of the building up. So when the Lord starts digging down in our lives, we just throw up our hands and go, oh, see, I knew this stuff wasn't real. But there was a group of people who still got it. Even after, even after he made this big ruckus and this mess. There was a group of people who still got it in the temple. Yeah. You know who they were? The children. The children. In the midst of that, a little ad hoc children's mass choir just formed. The Jerusalem Children's Mass Choir. Without a director. And they started singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders, when they heard the children singing, 
They told Jesus, you better tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, haven't you read where it says, out of the mouths of infants and babes, you have perfected praise. Do you know why perfect praise came out of the mouths of the infants and babes? Because they were too young to have any expectations. Which reframes our understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, unless you accept the kingdom of heaven as a child, you can no wise enter into it. Children enter into a thing without any expectations of what the thing is. One of the greatest hindrances to our interest into the kingdom of heaven is our expectation of what that means. How about entering in and just giving God the right to take us where he wants to take us, to tell us what he wants to tell us, to give us what he wants to give us? The understanding that where God is taking us is better than our ducktails. It's so much better. So much better. And at the end of that day, Jesus leaves the temple, leaves Jerusalem silently and by himself. And the rejection was set. Good Friday was scheduled. The stage was set for his ultimate rejection and crucifixion. Why? Because he had ultimately failed to do what they expected him to do. I've met a lot of people who have expectations in their heart, and they'll even articulate them. My mother has glaucoma. If the Lord heals her, I'll believe. I had somebody tell me that. If the Lord heals my bad leg, I'll believe. If the Lord helps me get this promotion at my job, I'll believe. All of the pressure to perform. We don't realize that we're starting off our walk of faith on the wrong foot. Because we're starting it off by telling God what we require of him. That's the biggest problem with modern day faith, modern day Christianity. And Abraham Joshua Heschel said this very clearly. That modernity has replaced the fundamental question of scripture. What does God require of us? For the very modern question, what do we require of God? Here's what I require. When God fulfills the following requirements, I'll know that he loves me and I'll believe in him. And you got it twisted. Throw that away. You need to stop and recognize that if he doesn't save you, you are lost. It's like a drowning person telling a lifeguard, you can save me under the following conditions. I don't like the color of your swim trunks. Change those and come back and try to save me. And it simply means that we don't realize anymore that we're lost.
and especially those of us who already believe. Because we think that now that we have satisfied that foundational level of believing in Jesus for our salvation, we now can begin to lay our expectations before him and rightfully expect him to fulfill them because he is now obligated to us. And we miss it. There was nobody sitting with him at the end of that day going, Lord, this isn't what I expected. But maybe you have something planned that's bigger than my expectations. Can you help me see? Can you help me understand? This isn't what I wanted. But I trust that you're greater than what I wanted. Can you help me understand? See, one of the most powerful things you can do is when you're disappointed and when you're hurt, just come to God and say, God, I don't get it, but I'm still here. I don't understand, but I still trust you. I don't know why, but I still believe in you. I submit to you in my disappointment. And See, it's okay to be disappointed, and it's okay to need clarity from God as long as you submit that disappointment to him and submit that clarity to him. I still trust you. That's what Job did. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I don't get it. I don't know why, but I still trust him. That's the kind of faith that God is looking for. That at the end of the day, there wasn't even a single disciple left to sit with Jesus and say, I realize now that you're not who I thought you were. But could you show me who you really are? Just show me. I realize now that you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. But could you just tell me what you're getting ready to do or what you're doing? Or at least just tell me what you need from me. What you need me to believe. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Just that fundamental trust. That fundamental trust. Each and every one of us in this room can sit down and write a list of stuff that we hoped God would do that he didn't do. And you know what? There's a lot of people who have walked away from their faith in God because he didn't do something on that list. Forgetting that he died for you. Which is so much greater than the thing you scratched off your list. That he loved you with an everlasting love and eternity. Isn't it time to put away our lists, to become like the little children, yeah. just to sing Hosanna to the son of David. The children were still singing, save us, even after he destroyed their money ta- changers tables. When the Lord comes into your life and starts turning over the tables, yeah. are you still singing Hosanna? And the only way to do that is to trust that if there's tables in my heart that he's turning over, he's getting ready to build something that those tables are in the way of. And what he's building is so much greater than what he's destroying. Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to every heart and bring clarity I pray that you would bridge the gap that in any place in which my words were not able to bring clarity that Holy Spirit you would bring clarity 
to every heart and every soul. You're speaking to the hearts of disappointed and disenchanted people. You're speaking to the hearts of individuals who had expectations, who thought you would respond in certain ways, but you didn't. You're speaking to the hearts of the skeptical. And I pray, Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would release faith. Amen. The faith that says, Jesus, would you just come to me and you just be you? I'm going to stop trying to prescribe what that means. Just come and be you. Lord, we've become so familiar with you that we don't realize that familiarity breeds contempt. We've become so familiar with you so familiar, overly familiar. Lord, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would recover something of the mystery, the mystery of who you are. That when John saw you on the Isle of Patmos, you were so glorious that he could not stand. He fell to his feet like a dead man, fell to the floor like a dead man. And you took him by the right hand and said, John, do not be afraid. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am he who is dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hell. John had been walking with Jesus for about 80 years already, 70 years. But Jesus was still revealing to him who he was. Lord, I pray that we would put away our familiarity and that you would awaken within each and every one of our hearts the mystery. Show me who you are. That's what mystery does in me, is it causes me to cry out, show me who you are, show me your glory. I'm not going to assume that I know you. I, want, I, I know you died for me. I know what you did. I know who you are, and that's not going to change. I, the theological truths that I know of you will not change. You're the Son of God. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the Savior of the world. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the resurrection and the life. All of those things are true. But show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. To believe in you, I need to meet you. I need to see you. God, I pray that that cry would resound in every heart and in every soul. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Like Moses when he stood on the mountain and he said, please let me see your glory. Like the apostle Paul when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might know him. But Paul, don't you know him? Yes, but I still long to know him. I know him, but I don't know him. There's more to know of him. There's more to see of him. He's got more glory than I've seen. Awaken in us that hunger for the mystery, that mystery of the kingdom. That mystery that was once hidden from ages and generations, but now is being made known to your saints. But God, nobody's hungry for it anymore. If there's one thing missing from contemporary modern day Christianity, it's the hunger for the mystery of who you are. Because we've reduced you to a theology. We've reduced you to a religion. We've reduced you to a philosophy. We've reduced you to a morality. We've reduced you to a political party, to a political agenda. But you're more than all of that, Lord. You're more than all of that. And you, you're desperate to show us who you are. But God, I pray that we would be just as desperate to know who you are. That we'd be desperate to see you, to hear you, to know you. The real Jesus. The real Jesus. The real Jesus. Not a caricature of you. Not a caricature. Not a cultural caricature. 
the real Jesus. And Father, I pray for an encounter with the living God for every soul, everyone under the sound of my voice, that there'd be an encounter with the living God, an encounter. God, there's some in this room right now and some listening to this message right now that you're going to meet in the, even in the midnight hour as they lay awake on their bed. You're going to come into their room and show them your glory. Father, I pray that those encounters would happen. Because that's what we need. It's not about making Jesus more palatable for a generation. Making it easier for people to accept the Christian religion. It's not, a, the Christian religion can't save you. Only the Christ. Only the Christ. You got to know Jesus. You must be born again. Father, grip every soul. Grip every soul. Grip every soul. Take no prisoners, Jesus. Take no prisoners, Jesus. Take no prisoners, Holy Spirit. I prayed in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. I just feel that in my spirit right now. And I, we're just going to open up these altars. And if you want to respond in any way, shape, or form, if there's something on the inside of you that's pressing for more, I want you to run to this altar this morning. I want you to come and get on your knees or stand at this altar. Just begin to seek the face of God. Don't, don't hesitate. That There's that hunger in you that says, I want to know. I want to know. I want to know. Everybody else stand to your feet and lift your hands. Worship team, come back. Worship team, come back. We're opening up these altars. We're just going to seek him just for a few minutes. Jesus, 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 the knowledge of who you are. Show us your glory.